Father, we ask this morning, as you've gathered us together here by your grace and by your mercy, Lord, that that you and your Holy Spirit would search us this morning, you would search our hearts, you would search our thoughts, that you would try our hearts, examine our hearts, expose to us any area in our life where we've fallen prey to our own self-deception, anything in our heart that's grievous towards you. Search us and examine us and show us that we might be able to turn from it this morning and fix our eyes once again upon you, the, the one who leads us in the path of everlasting life. It's gonna take your Holy Spirit to do that this morning. And so we ask that you would do that for your glory, for our good, and in Jesus' name, amen. I'll be honest, I, w- I was simply personalizing there a prayer that David actually prayed in Psalm 139. You might be familiar with part of it. And David asked the Lord to search him and to know his heart, to try him and to know his thoughts, to see if there is any grievous way in him and to lead him in the way everlasting. See, David understood his own capacity for self-deception. David knew how easily he could deceive himself, especially when it came to the examination of his own heart, his own motives, his own thoughts, his own intents, and so he throws himself upon the mercy of the Lord and and asks God to actually show him what was grievous in his heart, to know him and to try him and to expose to him what did not bring God glory, what was contrary to God's wisdom and God's will, that he might turn from it and follow God in the ways of life everlasting. David knew he could easily deceive himself. And we've seen over and over as we've been going through the book of James that Pastor James knows how easily we can deceive ourselves as well. He knows we have a tremendous capacity for self-deception, especially when it comes to the examination of our own heart and our understanding of what's going on, what's driving us, what's motivating us. So Pastor James is, has been on a tear in this beginning of this letter, calling God's people back to the awareness of the fact that they can be deceived. And he has this ring throughout the entire first chapter of don't be deceived, don't be deceived, know this. In fact, you could go back and look at the entire first chapter and you can really read it through the lens of James's desire that God's people not fall prey to their own self-deception. Let me just show you what he said in chapter one through this lens, and if you've been with us, it'll sound familiar, and if you haven't been with us, you're gonna catch the gist of what James has been telling God's people all along to what we've done so far. Just just listen through the lens of don't be deceived. Don't be deceived, brothers. The various trials that you face in this life, they're not pointless. I know there are times when you feel like there's no redeeming value through what you're going through that what you're experiencing has no end in sight. Don't don't be deceived and fall prey to that. Your, Your trials are not pointless. In fact, your good God is using those trials to refine the genuineness of your faith and to cultivate in you the virtue of steadfastness that, as he said, when it has its full effect, it is going to be used by God to bring you to the place of maturity. Don't be deceived. They're not pointless. 
And don't be deceived when, when you're facing the various trials that you encounter in this world and you're not able to see them the way that God sees them and to see them through the lens of his purposes. Don't be deceived and think that you're left to just flounder on your own. No, he stands ready to give you the wisdom that you need to see the trial that you're encountering through his eternal and sovereign purposes. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived about why he's allowed that trial into your life in the first place. God has not allowed this trial into your life to tempt you to sin or to play with your emotions or just to see what you're going to do. No, don't be deceived about who he is and why you're facing the various trials that you're facing. Don't be deceived when you respond to those trials sinfully either. God didn't put that there to cause you to sin. Don't be deceived. You sinned because of the desires that are buried deep into your heart. Your own desires tempted you to respond in that moment, in that way that you did. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived either, brothers. God has given you every good gift, everything that you need. Even in those moments when you respond to those trials in sinful ways, God has given you everything you need. He has given you the grace and mercy that's come to you through his son that you could come to him in those moments and receive forgiveness for those things. Don't be deceived about who he is. Don't be deceived about the height and the depth and the breadth and the width of his generosity and mercy that he's shown you. He, according to his own will, by his own decision, by his word of truth about his son caused you to be born again to a new life. Don't be deceived. You didn't do this. God set his love upon you that you, by his grace, might be a first fruit of his mercy and his grace. Don't be deceived. Don't be deceived other, other ways either and feel like this new life is not meant to be reflected in new ways of living. Don't be deceived. He redeemed you by his grace that you might reflect him in the way that you live. Don't be deceived and, and think that hearing and knowing God's word is the same as surrendering to it and obeying it. Don't be deceived. Self-deception can be deadly. Don't be deceived. Our capacity for self-deception in our own hearts can lead us down a path and a form of religion, of a form of faith, of a form of misplaced worship to a place where we may be busy with all kinds of activities, with headfuls of all kinds of knowledge, able to recite all kinds of things and yet find out one day that it was all worthless, that it was all empty, and that it was all vain. If anyone thinks he is religious, James says, and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. The same line of thinking James has been taking us on. He's saying there is a form of religion that one day will prove before God to be worthless, to be vain. In fact, when James says it proves to be worthless, he uses a word that his readers would have been familiar with. It's a word that's used throughout the Old Testament and every time it's used in the Old Testament, it's used in connection with idolatry. 
James says there is a form of religion, a form of faith that you may fall prey to professing, having fallen prey to your own self-deception that will ultimately prove itself to be nothing other than idolatry itself. Self-deception can be deadly. Immediately in your mind, you you might even be recalling something that James' half-brother Jesus had taught over and over again that James was certainly aware of, that those who were listening to this letter being read were certainly aware of. There was that time that Jesus was teaching. You might remember in Matthew chapter seven where he said that there are going to be people who are going to come to him one day and say, didn't we do all kinds of miracles in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? Certainly those people could have quoted all kinds of things that Jesus taught. Jesus said he's going to look at them and say, depart from me. I didn't know you. See, there's a capacity that we have in our own heart for self-deception that James is trying to help us to acknowledge, help us to see, help us to repent of, that we might not fall prey to it, that one day left unchecked can lead down the path of an empty and void worthless form of faith. And there's something I want you to be very aware of as we get into this this morning because I want you to know what's going on to a degree in my heart and in my mind as we get into this. My responsibility when we stand up here every single Sunday is is to the best of our ability by the help of the Lord to expose to you what he's actually saying in his word. And we're supposed to expose it to you in the way that the writers actually intended it to be exposed. And so what James is doing here this morning is something that's very difficult for many of our 21st century ears. James is actually, by the grace of God, giving us an opportunity to examine the reality of what's going on in our hearts underneath our form of faith and form of religion that we might be able to examine whether or not we fall and pray to self-deception and whether or not we're actually followers of Christ. We don't like to do that these days. It's a difficult thing for ears to hear But there's a way for you to examine your own heart and see whether or not you've actually fallen prey to self-deception. But that's a gift of grace by God because he gives us, as James says, every good and perfect thing that we need. He gives us the capacity then to see the deception we've been exposed to that we might repent and receive what we need from him, but it's hard. And so here's what I know. I know that as I try my best, as God leads to expose what James is saying here with the same tone and intention that James is saying it to the church, that there are gonna be some of you here who are predisposed to all kinds of anxiety, all kinds of issues with assurance, and you're going to hear the questions that James gives and the things that James is saying, and you stand the chance of walking away unduly burdened by what he's saying. And so here's what I want you to know. James is giving us an opportunity to examine what's going on in our heart. And I'm gonna do my best to say it the way that James says it. And I want you to know that I am leaning into the work of the Holy Spirit with every fiber of my being that he would allow you to hear exactly what you need to hear and not find yourself unduly burdened by something that you're not supposed to hear. Does that make sense? James is giving you, he's giving God's people an opportunity to examine what's going on in the heart to see whether or not we have fallen prey to any capacity of self-deception within us. And he does it by giving us three marks or three tests or, or three traits of what he would call pure and undefiled religion. Controlled speech, practical compassion, and personal purity. 
He's going to help us to examine what's going on in our hearts through the lens of these three things. And here's what I want you to know. James understands that that list, controlled speech, practical compassion, personal purity, is not exhaustive of the Christian life. So why these three things? Of all the things he could have said that help us examine what's going on in our heart to see whether or not we've deceived ourselves, why these three things? Well, they're part of an argument or a picture that James has been painting all along. If you remember, we've said it a couple times already this morning, that that James has reminded us that God by his own will caused us to be born again by his word of truth. And in causing us to be born again and giving us new life by his grace, he intends for our lives to reflect something of him. Oftentimes you'll hear it said this way, we have been redeemed to reflect. Redeemed by the love of God to reflect the love of God. Redeemed by the grace of God to reflect the grace of God. We have been redeemed to reflect the one who has loved us and saved us. In in our house, we say it this way. This may be easier for you. I'll come back to it at at some points. In in our house, if you spend any time around us, you'll you'll hear my wife and I say something to each other that that even our kids know what it means now. So my son, he's sitting back here. He'll do something in the house and I'll look at my wife and I'll say this. I'll say, apples and trees. And everyone in the house knows what I mean. What I mean is whatever he just did, that's you. That's not me. Whatever he just said or however he just said it or whatever he just did, that's coming from you. That's an apple from your tree. And she'll turn around and look at me when my middle daughter says something or does something and she'll say, well, apples and trees, right back at you. And all day long you'll hear us say apples and trees when we talk about our kids, apples and trees. And even our kids know what it means when they hear us say apples and trees. I think it was the other day, Jude turned around and said, are you talking about you or mom? Who did I just, you know? The whole idea is simply this, they're yours. They're ours. And there's something about them that's reflecting something of where they came from and whose they are. What James is doing here is is reminding us that having been made new, given new life by the mercy and grace of God and indwelt by his spirit, we're meant to reflect something of him. Our lives are meant to reflect the fact that as his apples, we came from his tree. It's supposed to be able to be seen. And he chooses these three things because of what he's already told us. He reached out to us and gave us new life through his word of truth. So we, his children, the apples from that tree, should reflect in our lives a controlled speech. It was his word, his good word, his word of truth that gave us new life. So our lives should reflect a controlled speech. Behind his determination, behind his decision to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, while we were still dead in our sins and trespasses, completely given over to our own desires, in love for us, those who were most helpless and unable to save themselves, he acted. And we could never pay him back for what it cost him to redeem us, but his love made us his children. And because we're his children, we should reflect the same kind of compassion and mercy towards those who are most helpless and most vulnerable, apples and trees. And James has already told us that his work in making us new had a purpose, that we should be first fruits of his grace, of his glory. We were specifically and specially his and meant to reflect an aspect of his righteousness and his holiness. So as his children, apples from his tree, we're meant to reflect that in keeping our lives unstained from the world. 
He picks these three things because of the picture that he's been painting. He's setting out for us traits or things that are meant to mark us so that as we examine our hearts and we examine our lives to look and see if we fall into any capacity that we have for being deceived, we can see whether or not our lives are really reflecting the one who has loved us and made us his own. So important are these three things and these three traits to James that these two verses don't just sum up chapter one, they actually serve as the headers for the rest of the book. So chapter two, James is gonna deal with this whole idea of practical compassion. The first half of chapter three, James is gonna deal specifically with a controlled tongue, with the way we speak. The second half of chapter three through chapter five, he's gonna deal with personal purity or what it means to remain unstained from the world. This is it. He's setting up in bold heading what the rest of the letter is going to be about. And so this morning, I'm just gonna introduce it to us and allow God by his grace to do what his intention, I believe, was for James at this point, and that's to give us a chance to begin examining our own hearts to see, to ask the Lord. Are you willing to ask the Lord to examine your heart, to know your thoughts, just like David did, recognizing your capacity for self-deception? Use the time this morning by his spirit, through his word, to examine your heart to show you anywhere you fall and pray to self-deception that you might be able to turn from it and repent of it. And maybe once again, fix your eyes firmly on the one who leads you in the path of everlasting life. That's what we're gonna do this morning. So let's pick it up in verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. I mean, there, there are some verses that you just don't have to say a whole lot about. They preach themselves in a lot of ways, but I'm gonna let a much wiser and bolder pastor than I say this. This is what John Piper says about James' intention here. Piper says that James' point is simply this. If you say you're religious or you say you have faith in Christ, but you don't bridle an unloving, gossiping, lying, angry, bitter, cursing tongue, then your faith, your religion, whatever you call it, is worthless empty, hollow. And James does something for us to help remind us of something that we saw when we were walking through the gospel according to Mark and we saw that it's all throughout the teaching of the entire Bible that ultimately how we speak and what we say, it's an issue of our heart. James is saying if you profess to be a follower of Christ, that you have been born again and made new by the gracious act of God's will and you are indwelt by his spirit, the very spirit that raised his son from the dead and yet you do not bridle your tongue. Your speech is not controlled. You are deceiving yourself. You have fallen prey to a measure of self-deception. You are telling things to yourself about yourself that simply are not true. Your tongue, your speech, how you speak to other people is the most accurate index of what's going on inside of your heart. And James isn't making this up. This isn't a pet peeve of James's. In fact, we'll see though, when we get to chapter three and talk about this most specifically, I'll remind you and I'll walk you through it. James deals with the way that we speak in every single chapter of this book. He says something about the way we speak. When biblical writers would make lists when they would write, they put those lists most often in order of emphasis and importance. There's a reason this is first. 
It's an issue of the heart. James was just reminding God's people of something they already knew that Jesus had taught. It's out of the abundance of the heart, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, that the mouth speaks. It's, it's out of what's actually really in there. No matter how you think you gloss it, no matter what excuse you might give for it, it's out of what's really going on in here that your mouth speaks. And I want you to pay careful attention to one thing because some people teach this and, and I don't think anybody here will be falling prey to this, but I just want to be, be honest about it. James is not calling God's people to silence. He, he didn't say that you're meant to examine whether or not you've fallen prey to self-deception and see whether or not you have a silent tongue. He said a bridled and I'm not an equestrian. I've been around horses some, but I would in no way be mistaken for a equestrian. But I do know this. The bit and the bridle are absolutely essential for the control of the horse. They help the rider direct the horse on where to go, when to go, when to stop. And when James says that we're to be marked by a bridled tongue, He's giving us a picture. He's gonna get way more explicit in chapter three. But with this picture, he simply says that your tongue, your speech has all the power, all the independence of a wild horse that has to be broken. It has to be bridled. It has to be controlled. And James is going to tease this out more specifically a little bit later. And so this morning, just let the reality of what he says serve as a warning for you this morning. When you speak, you are revealing what's really going on inside of you. So husbands, when you speak to your wives when no one else is around, not when your kids are around, you've got to control what you say, and not when you're out in public or when someone else is nearby, and so you want to be somewhat measured because you don't want them to think the wrong thing. When you're all alone, how you speak to your wife is reflecting what's going on in your heart. Wives, same thing. Parents, when no one else is around and you're speaking to your kids, kids aren't gonna say anything to anybody else. You know you can get away with it in this moment. How you speak to your kids is reflecting something of what's going on in your heart. Friends, when you speak to each other. When you speak to your coworkers, when you speak to your friends, when you speak to your family, when you speak, you are reflecting what's going on in your heart whether it's gossip, backbiting, cursing, anger, bitterness, filthiness, just plain old superficiality. It's exposing something, even if it's encouragement. It's helping someone see themselves for who they are in light of the gospel. It's exposing what's going on in your heart. I had an email from someone this last week who was going through a difficult situation with another follower of Christ, two followers of Christ, going through a difficult situation because their friend said something to another friend about them thinking they wouldn't know about it. And obviously they found out about it. And now all three relationships seem to be a bit fractured and severed. And 
I got an email about how to go about responding to it and, and living in the midst of it. And at the end of the email, they said something very telling and talking about what the person had said and how they said it and how hurtful it can be. The end of the email simply said this, who needs enemies when in the church you can have friends like this? It's a painful reality. Our tongue, James is gonna get down to it in chapter three. It's an instrument of righteousness. It can be an instrument of harm. And what we say matters because it reflects what's going on in our heart. And it's meant to reflect the one who has loved us, who saved us, who's redeemed us, who's called us to be his own. Are you reflecting the one who has loved you this way? Apples and trees. But James isn't done. Verse 27. James says, religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, there's a very important word there to really catch the emphasis of what he's saying. And and if there's anything I, I hope you to hear and walk away with, it's simply this. There's a very important word there and I want you to see it. So listen to this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and there's a comma. What's the very next word? Is it and or is it or? Is it and or is it or? It's and. It's to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. It's practical compassion and personal purity. And here's why that word is so important. In the church, in general, we have divided ourselves along two lines in two camps. Practical compassion and personal purity. In particular, in conservative reformed churches, we seem to be the champions and the soldiers and the watchmen of personal purity and doctrinal integrity and we'll leave practical compassion up to other people. If you think about even the politics that we talk about through the church and in the world around us, we divide political parties into camps. Those who are about practical compassion as they define it and those who are about legal and moral purity as they define it. And you fall into one or the other. When you go into a church, and we know this because we do meet our age like we're gonna do this morning every single month and every single time someone asks us a question about this. Do we care about practical compassion and the needs of others? Or are we all about personal purity and, and moral righteousness? We have divided these things into an either or camp. And in the reformed conservative world, for the most part, we have been happy to say that we are the bastions of personal purity and doctrinal integrity and will leave practical compassion up to others. Now, we don't say that explicitly, but that's what we do. And James just said that religion that's pure and undefiled before the Lord, it's both. It's not one or the other. In the last six months, I've had no less than seven, seven distinct requests from people, some in this church, some from outside the church and other relationships and and, and associations that we have, asking for any kind of assistance in trying to find a gospel-centered, grace-driven, conservative residential program or treatment program for people with different issues, be it alcoholism or drugs or people dealing with suicidal impulses and intentions and they need a place to go, they need a place to be cared for and they want it to be from a gospel-centered, grace-driven worldview. And guess what? 
I generally can't find them. Because the conservative, gospel-centered, grace-driven world has said we're going to be a world that's all about personal purity. And praise God, we talk about that here all the time. It's important. It made the list. But we have left practical compassion up to other people. And we don't get that option. It's not either or, it's both and. And so James gives us two more traits, two more marks, two more tests by which we can see whether or not in our hearts we have fallen prey to self-deception. Are our lives reflective of a personal purity, of a desire and an intention and a passion and a proactive nature to not be unstained by the world? And I choose this one first because I'm gonna say the least about it because I think if you were to have to put what we say from the pulpit in this church up on a scale or any classes that we teach and you were to say, take everything that we say and and everything that we teach and how we apply the word, I think if you were to measure out whether we talk more about practical compassion or personal purity, you would find we talk more about personal purity. We talk more about holiness and sin and repentance and forgiveness and praise God, it's one of the marks. But I think on the scale, we talk a lot less about practical compassion. So I'm gonna say more about that in just a minute. But when James says one of the marks that we're to examine our hearts by to see if we've fallen prey to self-deception is simply this, are we keeping ourselves unstained from the world? When James says the world, he has something in mind, and I wanna make sure you have the same thing in your mind. When James talks about being unstained from the world, he's talking about the, what we would probably call a worldview. There's a larger mechanism or way of thinking that the world around us possesses that defines why we're here, what we're for, what we should value, what we should pursue, how we define ourselves, and it gives us various messages through every aspect of our life that defines those things for us, and every single aspect of it is contrary to the wisdom and the will of God. There's a way of understanding why the world is the way it is and why you're actually here and what you're actually for and why you do what you do and why you experience what you experience and why you should pursue what you should pursue that is contrary to the wisdom and will of God. It's a worldview that's in antithesis to what God has revealed. That's what James is talking about. And what James is saying when he says that we keep ourselves unstained from the world, in some sense, is that you and I, we tend to be far more passive in receiving the messages that the world around us sends us regarding why we're here and who we are and what we're supposed to be after. And when James is talking about being unstained from the world, the bigger picture of what he's actually painting is simply this. We are proactively, passionately, taking the messages that we are being given from the world around us about those things and testing them, trying them, running them through the filter of the gospel and God's revealed will in his world to see whether or not they are good and right and true and rejecting those that aren't and identifying ourselves and understanding who we are and why we're here and our identity and purposes through the lens of his wisdom. Keeping ourselves unstained from the message defining nature, the worldview around us. James wants us to be proactive in that because the reality of it is we are far more passive in receiving those things than we think. And I don't think that this is particularly true of this local church characteristically, but there is an emphasis even in the church 
today that says, you know what? We should be able to identify ourselves as followers of Christ, as Christians, as gospel-centered people, and at the same time, try to live according to the worldview of the world around us to make our lives more appealing. That we might have crossover appeal with people. We can be followers of Christ and live the way that they do, and maybe it'll make Jesus more appealing. When we do that, we're falling prey to a self-deception in our own hearts. So James is reminding God's people that God set his love upon you and caused you to be born again by his own will at the cost of his own son, that you might be the first fruits of his grace, specifically his and specially holy. And that's meant to be reflected in a desire and a proactivity to keep yourself from being stained by the world to keep yourself from falling prey to the worldview of the world around you that would say you're something and here for something and purposely for something that's contrary to what God says about you. It gives you a chance to reflect. Is my life reflective of who God has made me to be? Am I in the world? I'm not trying to escape it. I'm not trying to get away from it but I'm in it, I realize I'm not of it, that I'm defined by something bigger, that wisdom comes from him and him alone, that he defines why I'm here and what I'm about, that I'm in the world, but I'm not of it. But there's a phrase that gets left out in that, and we'll get back to it more as we get to the later parts of the book, but you're familiar with that whole phrase, not being in the world, but being in the world, but not being of the world, but there's another piece the reformers used to say as well, We're in the world, we're not of the world, but we're for the world. We're for the world. We're for the flourishing of those around us as our lives reflect the wisdom of the gospel, the one who has redeemed us at the cost of his own son, and our lives are reflecting his character and his nature, and we're for the flourishing of those around us as they see the work of him in us reflected through us, and we have the chance to give them the reason for the hope and the transformation in us. And one of the ways they see that work out is what James gets to next. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Now when he says orphans and widows, in some sense that's shorthand for all of those who are most needy and most vulnerable and most helpless and most susceptible to exploitation in the world that he lived in. Orphans were children, as they still are now, without parents. But in that day and age, unless someone took specific responsibility for that child, they would be left to fend for themselves in that world, and they would not make it. Widows in that day did not have life insurance policies taken out against their husbands. When their husband died, if there was no child or family immediately around that would take them in and take care of them, they would be left to themselves. It did not go well for them. Widows and orphans encompass, when James writes this, the totality of those who in the world around them were most vulnerable, most needy, and most desperately in need of someone else's care and compassion. And James says that the work of the gospel in us by the grace of God is meant to be reflected through us in a genuine concern and proactive care for the helpless and the needy around us, those who are most utterly dependent upon someone else for life. 
And here's what hit me. I was telling my wife this yesterday. I wish that what had hit me in this verse hit me earlier in the week. I hope you realize that when we stand up here to preach every single week, our intention and our desire is to process through these texts before we get up here that we might deal with what God's saying and be able to repent where we need to repent and communicate hope and encouragement or correction where we need to because we've dealt with our own heart. But this verse hit me Thursday. I'm still trying to deal with what James said in this verse. And it all comes down to that word and. Because if I'm gonna be really honest with myself, not explicitly and intentionally, but passively and implicitly, I have said I can choose to be about doctrinal and personal purity and I will leave practical compassion up to someone else who's more excited about it. I'll fall right in line to the rest of the larger church world and say there are certain people who are more hardwired to these kinds of things and praise God, I'll encourage them and support them, but I'm gonna be about what interests me most over here. And James just said, you don't get that out. You don't get to choose either or. True and undefiled religion before the Lord to recognize that you're not falling prey to self-deception in your own heart looks like this. Personal purity, yes. Practical compassion, yes. And I've been stunned by this this week. The weight of what he's saying can be easily missed in our language because the words that we use in this verse don't tend to, to carry the freight that the words that James used had. When James says that that. That pure and undefiled religion before the Lord looks like this, that God's people are meant to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction. Some of your Bibles will say to look after and to care for, and, and that's our best attempt to try to communicate what's behind this, but that word to visit is enormous, and I'd never seen it before. I can't tell you how many times I have read this book, read these verses, or, hear this, or heard this preached in my life's exposure to the Bible but I never truly understood what he was saying when he said that we are by the gospel obligated to visit, care for, look after the helpless around us. That word that he uses there to visit is used throughout the entire Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, and it's always used in connection with one thing, and that is God visiting his people in their affliction to redeem them. This word to visit carries massive, redemptive, gospel, obligatory undertones to it. Exodus chapter four says the Lord had visited the children of Israel in Egypt while they were in slavery and had looked upon their affliction and we know what he did for them, don't we? In Luke, after the coming of Jesus, Zacharias says, blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. This word to visit has tremendous implications, massive implications, radical implications for God's people. The apples of his tree who are meant to reflect him to the world around them, who are so easily captive and fall prey to the self-deception in their own heart. I know so many of you are like me. You're, You're like me. You would never say that you don't have to have any gospel reflection or obligation to the most vulnerable and needy around you, but implicitly in your life, you stand over here and champion those around you who seem to be more hardwired for it because you don't wanna have to do it. 
You don't get that out. What James is reminding us is of the grace and the mercy of God who came to us while we were most needy and most helpless and most vulnerable. He came and visited his people in their affliction in Egypt and redeemed them. He came and visited his people in their affliction and redeemed them at the cost of his own son. The apples from his tree are meant to reflect the same kind of proactive, radical, risk-taking care for those who are most needy and vulnerable around them because they, of all people, of all people, should know what it's like to be taken care of when they could not take care of themselves. And as Spurgeon would say, I was absolutely thunderstruck by that on Thursday. And I still can't figure it out because what most hit me is how easily I can deceive myself into thinking that this is reflected in me and reflected in my life, maybe because of what I do, Maybe because of the opportunities that I have given my role in the church. Maybe because of all the ways that I know that people in this congregation are actually living this out in their lives and I get a chance to encourage it or support it that I can begin to think it's true about me. Like the man who reads the word of God like he looks in a mirror and then walks away without obeying it or doing anything about it. I'm so encouraged by the ways that people in this church are actually reflecting this kind of care and compassion to the most vulnerable and needy around us. Those involved with the Life Links and those involved with the East End Pregnancy Center, those involved with the Youth Life Learning Centers, those who are are partnering and working with Bazaar to to reach and to show compassion to the many refugees here in Richmond. I don't know if you know, but Richmond is one of the fastest growing refugee resettlement cities in America. And God brought us two years ago a formerly imprisoned Iranian pastor that we might help him start a Persian-speaking church in Richmond who now takes many people in here every single week to go reach Central Asian refugees here in Richmond that aren't even registered or marked here in the city. He knows where they are. The aliens and the sojourners around us. It's happening here. But here's the thing. I can be deceived in my own heart thinking that it's true of me because somewhere in my own heart I've made that implicit division between having to choose between personal purity and doctrinal purity and practical compassion, and you don't get that out. And James is giving us an opportunity to ask God to search us and and know us and, and show that to us, expose that to us, that we might be able to repent of it and not fall prey to the self deception that we so easily get entangled by. James is trying to take us back to recognizing the fact that as apples, we're meant to reflect the one from whom we came. Of all people who know what unmerited mercy, unmerited encouragement, unmerited help looks like, to those of us who know that apart from the grace of God, apart from the mercy of God, apart from the will of God that shows to cause us to be born again to new life by his word of truth about his son who sacrificed his life in our place for our sin, we, without that, would be in a place more perilous than even the orphan and the widow around us. Who else, who else should reflect that kind of mercy and compassion and proactive care for the most helpless around us? James is giving us a chance to look into our own hearts and go, have I deceived myself? Is my my father's life pulsing in my veins? 
Is my life reflecting this kind of sacrificial care for those around me? James doesn't let us speak in in general terms about this either. He's gonna get very specific as he keeps going in the letter, but he's really specific here. He wants us to examine ourselves and allow the Lord to show us. He, He speaks, one commentator says, not about general kindliness, but about whether or not our actual display of concern for others bears the mark of our Father's concern for us. This morning, Pastor James wisely kindly by the mercy of God gives us a chance to allow the spirit of God to examine our thoughts to search us to know our hearts to know our motives and to know our intentions to see if there's any grievous way in us where have we fallen prey to the self-deceiving nature of our own heart and believe something to be true about us that really isn't show us that we might be able to repent that we might be able to turn that we might be able to fix our eyes for the first time or the first time in a long time upon you, the one who has who's brought us to new life and who now by your wisdom leads us in the ways of life everlasting. That's what we get this morning. And so as we prepare to respond to God's word together, I want you just to take a minute or two. I want you to close your eyes if that's the easiest thing for you to do. I'm just gonna ask you a couple of questions to allow you to, to search your heart to be willing to ask God to show you if you fall and pray to self-deception. And then together, as God's people, for those who have tasted of his grace and mercy, we're gonna respond by receiving communion together this morning. Just ask yourself, are, are you a follower of Christ? I'm not asking you about your spouse. I'm not asking you about your child. I'm not asking you about the person in front of you or behind you or next to you. I'm asking you about you. Are you a follower of Christ? If you would say no, I would say I'm glad that you're here this morning and I would simply ask you what's keeping you from placing your hope and your faith upon Christ as your king and as your savior. What's the hurdle? I would encourage you this morning to to receive him not only as your savior but as your king. I would encourage you by the grace of God and the mercy of God to see in Christ the love of a father who has loved you and made a way to be known by him and changed by him at the cost of his own son. I would invite you this morning to receive Christ. If I ask you if you're a follower of Christ and you say yes, just ask yourself as you prepare to receive communion this morning, is his life reflected in me? If I were to ask people around me, godly, trustworthy people in me, Are these aspects of God's character reflected in me? Or are they not? Are you willing to ask God this morning to show you any ways and and places in your heart where you fall and pray to self-deception? Where you are rather controlled by your tongue rather than controlling your tongue? Any place in your life where you may have drawn that distinctive line where thinking you can be about personal purity or about practical compassion and you can leave the other to someone else? Are you willing to ask him to show you this morning any area in your heart where you have fallen prey to self-deception? If you are, trust me, he'll be faithful. And when he does, let me encourage you. You have but one thing to do, and that's to look to Christ. To be reminded that God, as James said, has given you every perfect gift, 
everything that you need. And in the moments where he shows you where you fall into self-deception, he has given you the grace and forgiveness that comes through faith in his son this morning. Look to Christ. Thank God for exposing the self-deception. And turn to him with confidence, knowing that he gives you the very wisdom and thing you need to live the life he's called you to live. This morning, as the musicians play, we're gonna have an opportunity to respond. If you're a follower of Jesus, whenever you're ready, you'll be able to come forward and take a piece of bread, remembering the body of Jesus broken in your place for your sin. Dip it in the chalice of juice, remembering the blood of Christ poured out and shed not only for your forgiveness, but for your justification and for your adoption as his son and daughter. He has prepared this banquet and this feast for you this morning. I'm going to pray, and then when you're ready, you can respond. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that reveals to us who you really are, your word that reveals to us who we really are, and your word that reveals to us where we have fallen prey to our own hearts, temptations and our own hearts, self-deceiving desires. Lord, show us those things that we might turn from them this morning and turn to you for the first time or the first time in a long time. We wanna look like apples that have fallen from your trees. Lord, we want to live lives that reflect your righteousness that reflect the fact that we have been redeemed to be your children in this place. Don't let us off the hook. Lord, show us where we need to repent and bring us to the place of humility that calls us to it. We ask this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.